Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Latin American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ethan Besser-Frederick, the host of the channel, and today we'll be talking to Jorge Marco about their and Gutmaro Gomez Bravo's new book, The Fabric of Fear, Building Franco's New Society in Spain, 1936 to 1950. Hello, and welcome to the show, Jorge Marco. Hello. Thank you very much for the invitation. Before we get into the book in detail, could you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and how you and Gutmaro came to write the book? Well, we started the book. This book was published first in Spanish uh, 11 years ago. So this is an updated version in English right now. And we ended up working on this topic and in this book because he basically was working on the role of the Catholic Church in the prison Francoist system. And I was working more in the... um, uh, army trial system uh, under the Franco dictatorship. We were colleagues in the same department, so we decided that we had several discussions about the, the important, the key role of the army and the Catholic Church in the repressive system under the Franco dictatorship, and we ended up thinking that actually it would be very good to merge both. Uh, approaches and that that was the way we started to think about this this book. Well, I think uh, the the institutional histories and also the personal histories in this book I think are definitely one of its strong suits for anyone listening who's interested in military, state, prison, church history, and in Spain. The book is divided into three parts: the introduction, which sets out some of the analytical and intellectual stakes of it, and we're going to start there. In your introduction, you situate your work as belonging to a trend that, quote, relates the dynamics of violence in both their horizontal and vertical forms, and thereby expanding the universe of violence from its state structures to its more everyday practices, incorporating as well as broad spaces of social consensus. And it's really this connection between institutions and everyday practices uh, that is one of the the great strengths of the book and one of the the very interesting connections that's shown here. So could you tell us a little bit more about what kind of interventions you were hoping to make with the book and how it relates to the state of war that Spain endured at this time? Yeah, well, basically, we have noticed that um, when not only the case of Spain, but also in other countries, uh, when we studied uh, violence and repression, sometimes it's focused on institutions, only in institutions. And and in the last decades, there have been, you know, a huge wave of studies who focus on everyday uh, uh, um, resistance, but also repression. So um, we thought that we needed to to make a to dialogue. Uh, dialogue these both approaches because with this interconnection between institutions and and society so in in some way it was like trying to bring this uh, idea of history from below uh, together with um, institutions and and yeah i think 
if you focus only one of these sides, you are missing one of the main uh, aspects of the repression under the Franco dictatorship, but also in, in another kind of authoritarian or totalitarian uh, dictatorships. So, and actually, I think the most interesting is to look at this interaction because um, everyday uh, repression in have impact in institutions and also institutions uh, have a huge impact in everyday uh, repression. So basically we were looking at this interaction between these both two sides and also um, how change through the time because it was not a static uh, uh, process but uh, but on contrary uh, change through the time from you know the beginning of the Spanish Civil War to the end of the 1950s so that's a very good lead into how the rest of the book is separated into part one and part two with part one looking at the battlefield war so from 1936 to 39 until the end of the war uh and then uh, the second part of the book from 39 to 50, uh, as you examine uh, what the Franco estate certainly still considered a state of war, uh, but maybe historians or, or popular uh, listeners may not usually associate with the Civil War itself. So let's look into this first part. And your first chapter in this part, Military Trials, argues that the emergency summary trial became a very core site for state building for Franco and, and his forces between 1936 and 39. And I found this to be very interesting. Could you tell us a little bit more about this procedure? And uh, you point out at the very beginning of this chapter that uh, this procedure of an emergency summary trial was often conducted by men without any sort of legal training uh, and that this is the core foundation for parts of the Franco estate. Yep. Well, at the beginning of the war, in this, in this uh, chapter, we wanted to address several things. First, for example, at the beginning of the war, basically in the Francois side, um, in, the, in the Francois zone, there were more extrajudicial uh, murders, the uh, judicial murders during this, the, the first, I would say, six months of the war. But, although that, that is true, they started to build a new uh, judicial army system during this uh, period. And we wanted to look at this point because it was quite interesting how at the beginning, basically, they didn't have a clear idea about the procedures they uh, we need to follow in this, because this um, institution was increasing their importance in in the role that were playing in the repression, uh, a thousand of new members uh, were integrated in this institution, and they didn't know the procedures how to follow. So basically, in this chapter, we were looking at how the high command managed to organize the um, uh, judicial Francois system during the first. Uh, months and from the beginning they had a clear idea about one what they want to achieve basically um a hard hard repression uh, against the um, the enemy the internal enemy how they they call it uh, socialists communists uh, liberals republicans uh, anarchists uh, feminists uh, the anti-Spain, as they call it, so nationalists from Catalonia, from the Basque Country, 
in Andalusia, in Galicia, etc. So they had a clear idea that they had to basically broke the liberal system of justice and built a totalitarian uh, judicial system where people who were on trial, they didn't have any, any rights at all. And also to speed the procedure. They needed, you know, a very speedy justice because they need to, as they call it, clean, a political cleaning of, of the society in Spain. So we look basically at this at this uh, first stage of the, um, of the judicial system, the military judicial system. That was very important because we wanted to look, because the, the, the Francoist military system, judicial system, was, was one of the main foundations of the repressive uh, system established by the dictatorship from the beginning in 1936 until the end in 1977. I found these questions of popular participation and state building to be very interesting topics, especially coming at it from somebody who often is looking at Latin America and, and Mexico in this time. And I think for anybody interested in thinking about the relationship between top-down hierarchical control of violence and improvisation, because both work in this chapter and both uh, work well together. They're not in conflict, which I, I think is a very important contribution that this book makes. Yeah, I, I agree. That was one of the things because sometimes as a historian, we look uh, for processes or institutions and we, we, we tended to think, that, you know, it's something established and that happened from the beginning. And actually, actors have not only their agency, they, they, they are trying to achieve some things and sometimes they need to change it. So it's a trial uh, all the time. It's a, it's a kind of trial. And so we look at this aspect how uh, they needed all the time to change their policies, trying to to improve the, the system and the goals they wanted to meet. Taking a look at your next chapter, the second chapter is titled Rituals of Blood and Sacrifice. And this chapter analyzes the community of death, as you call it, which I think is a very interesting analytic that was created through the mourning, blood, and sacrifice of this period in, in Spanish history in the Franco repression. So could you tell us what you mean by community of death and how it was made in this time period? Well, in this case, we, we use more like an uh, anthropological uh, approach and um, we wanted to look at one of these uh, um, bottom-up dynamics and the interaction between uh, uh, civil society and the institutions. So basically, we had a clear idea in the case of the Francois uh, violence that the high command always had a clear idea that they need to they have clear targets. Uh, they need to clean the internal enemies and they provide these ideas to the population. But also, we need to look at different levels on the institutions. It's not the same, the high command, the high command, that the, you know, the regional states, the local authorities, etc. But also the perpetrators, who is the, the people who finally committed the murders. And what are the 
dynamics uh, among them. So, and at the same time, when we were looking at this, it's quite interesting because in some way, um, the Franco army, Austrian and authorities, were promoting violence against uh, the internal enemy. We, but what we call internal enemy sounds quite, um, how you say, sounds like um, pretty vague, probably, because we are talking mm-hmm. about local communities. Mm-hmm. Sometimes perpetrators were members of the same community of the victims, mm-hmm. which is quite... Um, a difficult situation because actually for decades after the these uh, events uh, families relatives were still living all together mixed b- uh, victims and perpetrators which probably is one of the, the main legacies of the franco dictatorship is still today um but in in some way perpetrators because they were um, they, 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 when you live in a community, and especially in local communities, and we need to keep in mind, basically Spain by this time was a rural country. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't the case like uh, you know the US, the UK, or even France. In Spain, more than 50% of the population still were living in uh, villages or towns, not in big cities. And the vast majority of this violence happened in these rural rural uh, communities, so they um, they when they committed these murders, murders, rapes, uh, etc., any any kind of crime, they were broken. the The main um, elements of a community, because. Although in any single community there are conflicts, of course there are conflicts in any single uh, community, but normally the communities have ways to manage this um, uh, altogetherness. Mm-hmm. But the, 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 um, the, Franco, the Francoist violence broke these links, uh, the, the, the bones of this community, because they, in one way or another, uh, killing, raping, uh, uh, etc. They um, broke the, the the more basic uh, elements of um, how a community live. In this uh, contest, there was a bond among the perpetrators because at the beginning became a, a perpetrator uh, could allow you to belong to a new national community. Mm-hmm. But this is for the first time. Uh, once you have done your job, even people who were supporting the Franco dictatorship could point to you because mm-hmm. you finally ended up uh, murdering, killing, raping, etc., etc. So it's interesting to see how at the beginning... For these members, this could be uh, a moment of um, when they started to create a new community, this community of death, which was very visible at the beginning, but ended up being very invisible. Very invisible because uh, people don't like to remember people who were killing. Actually, the communities normally are, are building up 
on the idea of victims. And this is what uh, uh, the Franco dictatorship did afterwards. Uh, basically, they uh, did a reivindication of their own victims, the people who were mm-hmm. killed in the Republican side, but they didn't provide like a, a proper memory for those who kill in their side. So, um, but, and, and, and also when you cross this line, uh, that's something, and, and actually when we were working on this topic, we were looking uh, to another um, like um, particular cruel um, um, events in history. For example, the, the, um, the French Revolution, the Russian Revolution. There are moments where blood is, um, is, um, is just across the streets. And there is a moment when this blood could um, make a strong bond among the members who belong to these uh, paramilitary groups normally. And in the case of the Franco dictatorship, that is the case. But also how these people at the end can end up being uh, very visible because they um, cross a line that normally societies in the context of no war um, doesn't like it. I don't know if I explained very well this part. No, I think so. I think that that combination of being of identifying yourself as a victim, but in practice having built identities and relationships through collaborate or collaborations, maybe not even the right word, but, but through participating in these together, I think that's such an interesting combination. Uh, and I can't think of a better phrase for it than community of death. So it's a very helpful analytic. <laughs> Thank you. The third chapter of the book takes us to the Catholic church. Then it's called the Catholic church punishment and pardon. And it argues that during this hot period of the war, 36 to 39, the church adopted a position of distinguishing between the criminals and the ignorant. And I think for people who work much with church history, these sorts of distinctions will be familiar. And they brought this even when it came to post-combat trials. So can you tell us a little bit about these categories and how they worked in this time period? Well, basically, the Catholic Church brought um, um, all the philosophical uh, categories who were made by Catholics, Spanish Catholics uh, uh, thinkers during the 16th century, 17th century, 18th century, and they tried to apply to this uh, conflict, to the Spanish uh, Civil War. And they divided the, the world in very two different um, uh, categories. Mm-hmm. And one of them was the people who were supporting uh, Franco, of course, and the other one, the anti-Spain, uh, were uh, those who were defending a more democratic and, and like uh, uh, country. So basically, in with they use these uh, categories uh, to create not only a narrative of the war, for example, they they consider the Spanish Civil War no like a, a Spanish civil, a, a, a civil war, but instead as a crusade against mm-hmm. uh, the Reds, against the enemies of God. Um, today, we we can find probably so many similarities with uh, another kind of um, uh, wars uh, that we can see in the Middle East. 
today mm-hmm. in the sense of a very fanatical point of view of uh, of uh, Catholicism. Because we need to remember that in in the Republican side there were Catholics as well, but they they had a different approach for mm-hmm. uh, Catholicism. Uh, so basically, in this case, the institution, the vast majority of the institution, because there were few. Um, orthobibs bishops uh, that they were against these ideas in the case of the Basque country or even in, in, in Catalonia but the vast majority of the Catholic Church in Spain supported Franco from the beginning and they basically created a, a narrative um, that it was a kind of blue, a glue, sorry and a blue, glue, uh, glue. Yeah. Um, because we need to remember that the Franco dictatorship Oh, Francoism, it wasn't an ideology before the Spanish Civil War. Uh, Francoism is uh, an ideology that is created during the Spanish Civil War with people from different, with different backgrounds, all of them from right-wing perspective, but uh, they were not all the same. They were fascists, they were uh, traditionalists, like uh, by traditionalists, we normally call people with a very strong right, far right wing perspective, but with a, uh, a very Catholic um, weight in their in their thinking. There were members of SIDA, uh, so different families. There were different families. And the Catholic Church basically was able to glue all these families uh, to create something new which was the, this ideology. So basically they provide this idea, dividing the world in, in black and white. Uh, and, and that was a very powerful narrative uh, um, in order to target the, the enemies of God. It is interesting to think of the, the new and the old mixing together here because you you bring up several times in the book the important role of these colonial contexts and colonial experiences but then it's also clearly transformed and and reimagined of what that looks like in the national context or metropolitan complex maybe i should say mm-hmm. well yeah uh, actually we need to think when when we normally think about violence in the context of war um basically there was a colonial violence mm-hmm. uh, where the enemies didn't have any... They were portrayed as no humans. So they, uh, you can do any kind of uh, atrocity against them because they are, were no humans. But this kind of violence never was used in, in the continent, in Europe. Even in the First World War, there were very few massacres. Um, so, the, the 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 case of the Spanish Civil War, as later happened in the Second World War, is one of these cases when we can call it um, uh, like a, a kind of a, a boomerang. So all the practices, all these uh, atrocities perpetrated by the colonial armies in colonial territories in Africa, in Latin America, etc., um, came back to Europe. Mm-hmm. In the case of Spain, uh, basically uh, the enemies, the Reds, the socialists, anarchists, etc., they were portrayed as no humans, no God people. So 
there was a kind of legitimation, legitimation that um, you can commit any kind of atrocity, a massacre uh, uh, against them. And that is something that also happened in, in the Second World War and, and uh, following on. So um, basically, yeah, there is a moment in history, and I think Spanish Civil War was a key moment, where civilian population became, for the first time, in clear targets of their armies. Um, and the Spanish Civil War is one of, of, of those, I, I mean, civil population in the metropolitan areas, because before uh, civil population was uh, a target for colonial armies. But in the context of the metropolis, the Spanish Civil War is one of the, the first ones uh, when this happened, when all this violence came back. The... Fourth chapter gets a, a bit more into the nuts and bolts of how this is brought back. The fourth chapter, titled Police Investigations and Military Intelligence, examines the Document Recovery Service. So I can't think of a better topic for a historian to want to learn more about or to write about than the Document Recovery Service. And it's run by a Carlist, uh, Marcelino de Ulibarri. And you conclude that the close cooperation between the Document Recovery Service, the police and military law demonstrates a level of planning of Francoist repression. So could you tell us a little bit about what you mean about this planning from the very beginning of the Civil War and the role that document recovery and this sort of creating of a legal archive, what what role did those play in that planning? Okay, in the, I think in this in this chapter we try to address, for example, one of the main debates that there were before in the historiography of the Franco regime. Basically, there, there were some tendencies that they were saying that the Spanish Civil War and the violence committed during the Spanish Civil War afterwards was a kind of um, irrational and not planning uh, violence. Mm. Mm-hmm. So everything constituted in, in, in the moment. Uh, but when we were working on the archives, we noticed that actually um, there was very well planned. Of course, there were changes all the time, but uh, there are changes because they are planning from the beginning. Uh, so we wanted to, to because uh, sometimes in the case of the, the, the Franco regime, you know, in contrast with uh, the, the Nazi Germany or the Stalinist uh, Soviet Union, um, has been portrayed like a kind of more uh, soft dictatorship. And actually, uh, it wasn't. The, uh, like that, and and we noticed in the archives that actually there were a, quite a clear um, planning, and also we wanted to introduce another element because the the, the main two pillars, the main two foundations of the Franco regime was uh, the system prison, the uh, prison system, and the military uh, jurisdiction, but we noticed that in between both of them. Uh, the role of the police in terms of institutions, the role of the uh, police work was key. And we noticed that they also started to work from the beginning. Uh, so basically, we were working with this um, new institution, Recuperación de Documentos, which uh, was um, um, an institution who changed through the time, also even their, their, their name change. And, but basically, they were trying to, um, once 
any city has been occupied, they need to go to the main places, for example, uh, working class organizations, uh, institutional uh, buildings, etc., etc., to collect all the data uh, uh, as soon as possible in order to use this data for repressing the enemies. Mm-hmm. But they also um, notice that they have having problems because you know uh, um, the the first occupation, the first stages of uh, occupations, uh, city occupations were was were was quite messy. So mm-hmm. they try to organize better groups, have a, a better idea. So they end up planning because for them the main issue was the big cities. Mm-hmm. Uh, Madrid, Barcelona, and Valencia, the three main Republican cities. Uh, the three of them, classic, um, they were like uh, were the main Republican ideas have in Spain. So they were symbols of, you know, uh, free thinking. But they were also massive in terms of population. So mm-hmm. it, it was not the same to occupy a city as uh, you know as uh, um, a city with one hundred thousand population than a city like Madrid with uh, more than one million of people. So in order to make this occupation uh, effective and to collect all the data possible, they plan. Um, how to occupy. So they work together, police, and a kind of intelligence police and the army work together. Uh, so along with the army, when they were entering the cities, uh, these um, uh, groups, these uh, police groups, were going to the main buildings. They have information where they're the main uh, buildings they wanted to to occupy, etc., uh, and and being able to get all the documentation as possible. So yeah, that that was a um and for example, um, right now you can go to the Archivo de Salamanca, which is one of the main archivos of uh, uh, repression in Spain, and they have uh, more than one million cards with information about people. All of this collected by this by this institution, by this police institution. It's really an incredible process described in this chapter. Um... And I, I feel like even if, uh, no matter how much I read about Francoism, it's still surprising every time to see just how planned out so so much of the repression was from the very beginning, what what it was always going to be about. Yeah, and I think in this case, we, we try to fight against the stereotypes because normally uh, when people are thinking, for example, about the Nazi regime, there are stereotypes about, you know, in, in general... Uh, people can think, you know, German, uh, the German culture is very organized, so they know how to organize everything. And uh, even in the repression, they are very practical and organized. Uh, but, you know, Spanish, Spain people, Spanish people, you know, it's, you know, it's from the South, uh, Latin, and they don't know how to organize and everything is for tomorrow, et cetera, et cetera. And, but that, that, these, are, uh, these are stereotypes and doesn't have anything to do with reality. When you look at the documentation, you actually can see uh, how they plan from the beginning different 
kind because it was like a kind of a web of uh, procedures to catch any enemy in one way or another, and some of them in, in different webs. So, um, uh, no, no, no. It's clearly, um, it's clear that uh, the Franco leadership have a clear organization of their oppression. Of course, there were problems in the context of war. Of course, uh, it wasn't effective at all. There were several problems, but they had a clear idea and they implemented different policies to have, uh, you know, a comprehensive system of violence and repression in Spain. Let's move on to one of these webs that you just alluded to. In the final chapter of this part one, Living with the Enemy, you examine the denunciations and the role of rumor. So could you tell us about public rumor, uh, a term that's very important in this chapter, and the role that rumor and honor play in this period in these denunciations? Well, uh, again, as you can see, we we were going from top-down to bottom-up approaches. So um, once we have looked, you know, at uh, the, the... the military judicial system, uh, the police system, the army, etc. Uh, we wanted to look at this um, aspect that has been studied in in, in different uh, case studies, for example, in, in the Soviet Union, in Germany, uh, in Italy, and, and, and has been studied also in Spain. So we wanted to go deep in the role of uh, civil population and how ordinary people, uh, even sometimes your relatives uh, can uh, produce a denounce against you. And, and, and how the, the main effect of this um, uh, uh, system is how the fear is spread across society. Because for, uh, you have, of course, new institutions who are trying to repress you in one way or another, but you can see the institutions more clearly. You know, you can see a police, you can see a, a judge, you can see... But when, when, when any single person, your neighbor, your brother, um, anyone can be the person pointing out at you uh, saying that you committed that crime uh, or that you were Republican. Uh, and, and, and that is terrible. That is terrific. It's, uh, I mean, it's, it's just a moment when you feel completely trapped. Uh, and this collaboration, as I said, and I think that is one of the main issues when you, one of the main difficulties to talk about the past, for example, in, in, in Spain and in other countries who have been living under a dictatorship, is that because you can address easily the role of the institutions. And you can say, you know, these institutions um, were broken on the rights. And, and, but it's more complex when huge sections of society have been collaborating because it can be your grandfather, could be your father, could be anyone. Um, and that is, I think, so for us, that was very important first to see how fear operates in society and was spread across the country. 
And also because I think we thought it was very relevant for the current debates. Uh, because it's very difficult to address, as I said before, and you can blame easily uh, the institutions. But uh, when the responsibility or part of this responsibility is also um, land in, in, in people, in ordinary people, that is more complex to address for a society, we thought. Every chapter is filled with a number of great uh, examples and case studies, but I think this one in particular, uh, I would really encourage to readers, this this chapter has just a number of very interesting examples, including the very first one in which a, a supporter of Franco somehow is still arrested by the Francoist system for not being sufficiently honorable. Let's move on to part two of the book in which we examine the, the not hot war from 39 to 50. Uh, the first chapter here, the sixth chapter of the book overall, Savage Spain, begins with a very compelling contrast of the victory parades for Franco soldiers around Europe after the war, alongside the brutal punishment for any soldiers who had in some way or another broken military code. And you use these examples to explore, quote, the clear relationship of subordination when there was also paternalistic between individuals and the state. So could you tell us a little bit more about Savage Spain? Well, in this case, I think we wanted to enter in a new debate. Uh, sometimes when we talk about violence, um, we as scholars and society, newspapers, etc., we make uh, too clear distinction between victims and perpetrators. And in terms of violence, actually, sometimes everything is quite messy and it's more complicated than that. So, for example, in this case, we, we wanted to address how, even if you were a supporter of Franco, even if you have been one of the, you know, the vanguard of uh, the army uh, against uh, the internal enemy, you can end up uh, being beaten or killed by members of uh, the dictatorship because I think the, the main issue in this contest was the Franco dictatorship opened a door of uh, opened the gate of violence and and when you open that gate in that way and you are promoting violence in this way it's very difficult to close it and that was what happened so um, violence is spread across the society, not only against, you know, the the call the, the, the people that they call uh, the internal enemies, but also uh, against people that at the beginning they uh, they were clear supporters of Franco. So that was one of the main, and and, and it was quite irregular. It was quite quite difficult to know. Uh, you cannot know when you have done a bad step and you can end the app in a bad way. That is one of the more awful situations because there is no clear boundaries what you can do and we do, uh, what can uh, cannot do. So that is the, the, the most, um, I will say, one of the most 
um, difficult situations and why violence is spread across society, first against internal enemy, also later against those, you know, maybe can have doubts or, or maybe don't don't keep in line or, or they end up in a bad moment in a, uh, in a, in a bad place. Um, and, and actually all this violence, uh, and maybe we can talk later because that is one of the lines of my inquiries right now, is about how all this violence was internalized in the families. Because right now it's in the public space. But I would say after the the battlefield war, uh, it was also internalized inside the families, in, inside the individuals, and it was um, spread in different ways. Uh, but yeah, basically in this in this uh, in this um, chapter, we wanted to make clear how the boundaries of violence were not clear at all. Uh, there were no limits. And, and and even people who were uh, Francois who ended up uh, in a bad place. I, I definitely do want to follow up with your inquiries into violence at the end here. We'll, we'll get a chance to talk about the work that you've been doing now since this book. Um, but let's take a look at the way that that violence was channeled in certain ways in the seventh chapter. Uh, which has a very, very interesting title of Franco's Prison Ship. And this chapter examines the creative ways that the state managed the enormous prison population. So a sort of channeled an organization of that of that oppression. And after 39, including executions and leasing out prisoners as workers with the intentional goal of isolating, punishing and converting people. So can you tell us a little bit about how the Franco estate managed this new prisoner population once the, the war formally ended, but obviously the state of war is ongoing. Well, didn't manage very well, actually. (laughs) Uh, But uh, I will say that they didn't care very much about that. So basically there was a huge uh, number of people. uh, We need to think that um, uh, basically at the end of 1939, at least half a million of people were um, in some kind of prisons, concentration camps, etc. And uh, in this period of transition, maybe one million people were moving from from one to another. So it was a huge number. Uh, the main effect was the and and in a very in a very difficult uh, material situations um, uh, in a context of uh, violence, in a context of um, uh, no logistics uh, at all. Uh, so basically, we don't know the numbers, but it's been calculated that maybe two hundred thousand people could die. We are not sure about that. We don't. We don't because we don't have the documents. But in terms of uh, hunger, uh, disease. Uh, ill treatment, etc. There were huge numbers of uh, prisoners who were uh, death or, or killed in one way or another, and also it was an increase of uh, suicides. So that was uh, the first one. Second, they they tried to um, well at the beginning uh, every single building building could 
and the app being a prison. Uh, but after the Battlefield War, basically they try to organize better the the um, the prisoners. So they there was a period of reduction of the numbers of uh, prisoners, especially from 1941. Uh, so they were able to put them in in um, not provisional prisons but in, in proper uh, jails, but still um, were totally um, crowded, totally crowded, and health conditions were awful. Uh, and actually the worst thing that a prisoner could have happened was that if you were a prison in... And we need to think about the social structure of Spain by this time. You know, uh, it was a social structure where family was fundamental, so basically, if if you, for example, uh, were a prisoner from Gali- uh, from Galicia, uh, you and you were in a Galician prison, you probably will be able to survive. What was able to survive because your family was providing you food, was pro- uh, providing you uh, clothes, etc. But if you have been transferred from Galicia to another region in Spain. Uh, well, that probably can be your death sentence because you don't have the support of your family and the prison is not giving you food enough, clothes enough to survive. So, for example, that is one of the, one of the most um, awful situations that suffer uh, prisoners during during this period. I don't know if I answered the question. I think you did, and I and I think you... I think the the your your initial answer to my question that the state did not manage it well, uh, I think is very apt as you get into the overcrowding and the lack of, of resources, and you make it clear that the state also knows this that they use moving people as punishment that they're aware that the prisons are are in horrific conditions. Well, yeah, and that's for example there were cases not not only that uh, there were cases of corruption, uh, there were uh, cases of. Uh, um, we can call it uh, kleptocracy from uh, members, uh, director of the uh, of the prisons, etc. And this and the, the the institutions, the state, know about these cases. We 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 have been able to demonstrate these cases because they have the reports. They wrote on black and white reports saying. Uh, there were people in these institutions, in prisons, who were using the food for prisoners to make money, uh, who were um, using uh, the different resources from these uh, prisons to, to get rich. And they didn't do anything at all. They didn't do anything at all. Or, for example, how they use... I don't know if it's in this chat or another one. One of the more awful situations is they, the state put as guards in prisons uh, relatives of people who have been suffered violence in their public side. Imagine if you... This is a very conscious decision. If you, you know, if you... Uh, for example, are a person in Granada and your father has been killed by the Republicans. Do you have a legitimate hate against those who have killed your father? 
and now you are put as a guard in a uh, in a prison. Well, the number of uh, violence incidents committed by guards against prisoners is huge. Was huge, and uh, one of the main reasons for that to happen was that they were using this uh, hatred. Uh, personal hatred they channel this personal hatred um, against um, the Republican prisoners um, I don't know if, if uh, we talk about in this chat uh, about this or it's another one but that, 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 that was one example that um, when we noticed we were shocked Continuing on this topic of prisons, the next chapter in the book actually looks at how prisons were reimagined at a certain point, or at least rebranded, if not entirely changed in substance. The eighth chapter, Enemies of Peace and Public Order, follows the evolution of the Francoist prison system in the 1940s, especially after D-Day in 1944, as they start to be as they start to change under Catholic leadership. So, for example. Uh, leaders of the prison system began to emphasize a system of humanitarian authoritarianism, which is just an incredibly interesting phrase. And one of the examples of this included replacing beatings, uh, or at least supposed to substitute beatings, with forcing prisoners to listen to gunfire uh, as the guards practiced target practice. So could you tell us a little bit more about these changes that are happening in the prison system, why they're changing, and what, what are the changes going on? Well, in this case, we wanted to address, as I said before, uh, we, we, we wanted to show that the Franco agency, it wasn't monolithic. Uh, mm-hmm. that actually, there were uh, conflicts within uh, the, the families uh, who were supporting the Franco dictatorship. We, we, we used to call it um, a coalition of violence. So, so different political families all came together. Uh, and, and build this uh, Francoism. But uh, still, there were these different families that they have different approaches about how the repression should be conducted. And that was one of the main cases. In the 19, I would say, in the last part of the Second World War, and this context of the Second World War is also important because from 1943, uh, it was pretty clear that the Allies... Uh, um, they were taking advantage, and probably Hitler uh, wasn't going to win the war. So <clears throat> the Franco dictatorship, uh, one way, tried to uh, um, decline some of the fascist traps and, and, and ideas, uh, at least in, in the, um, you know, for the uh, international uh, popular opinion. But also, in this contest, there were members of the supporters of Franco, especially those uh, more linked to the Catholic, traditional Catholic uh, uh, church. Some sectors of the supporters of Franco, especially those more linked to the traditional Catholic, uh, Catholic church, uh, but more moderated ones, or uh, we can say the more liberals in, in this right-wing world, um, they were trying to implement a new policy in the context of the prison system because something that we wanted to address was because there is a, a huge debate, for example, uh, about you know uh, 
uh, if Spain was a case of uh, genocide or if uh, it was a different one, etc. And there is a, a debate in Spain and outside. And we wanted to address this basically because uh, one of the main peculiarities of the Franco dictatorship uh, was that they classify individuals and they uh, had a clear idea that some of them were not able to change at all. So uh, that people could be targeted to be uh, murder or being in prison for, for a long time. But in their minds, they thought that the vast majority of uh, Republicans, these internal enemies, they can change because they had this Catholic idea of redemption. So that is one way how they use this uh, Catholic philosophical ideas to create this new uh, prison system. So they wanted to redeem them and they planify uh, a whole uh, prison system to to change the mind of, to redempt uh, these people who can be recovered. Well, and there was a dispute uh, among the institution because you have this uh, sector of the Franco supporters, but you have also a hard line uh, uh, sectors who are saying, no, 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 we need to apply a very drastic uh, policies against the enemies. And it was a huge dispute. Um, and it, this involved even the a ministry, the Ministry of uh, um, Interior, and the head of the prison system in Spain. And they were a spy by the Franco, uh, Franco's police. And in a kind of, I would say, very similar, you know, these purges uh, in the Stalinist uh, uh, Soviet Union, uh, there was a purge in the, in the Franco system. The only difference is they, they, uh, these people didn't end up uh, uh, in prison or 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 murder, uh, uh, but and they were displaced. They and their policies uh, were were put in disgrace. And finally, the hard line finally ended up winning this battle. But it was an intense battle, especially during two three years within the Francoist institutions about. How should be the role of the prison system, and um, how they should treat the the prisoners? This chapter, uh, I think, very much connects to the subsequent chapter, which is called "The Conversion of Those in Error." And so, it looks at one segment of this debate, and you study the confessions and repentances of Republicans, and you've. Um, posted many of them in this chapter, which makes it reading just on its own terms. And so you argue that these narratives followed a process set by the regime, that the Francoist regime had a very set process of what conversion and salvation would look like for prisoners, following a process of repent, obey, collaborate, and convert. So can you tell us a little bit about these confessions and this process? Well, that is one uh, very interesting because they were using procedures from the Catholic Church and, and mm -hmm. rituals and um, uh, turning up into a very clear repressive uh, tool against internal enemies and and, uh, and that was a tool to redeem these people who who were the internal enemies but they thought that they could 
become uh, a good Spaniard. And basically, um, they had two ideas. First, because there is like a, a collective conversion, but also the, in, the individual conversion. Because the, the, the main goal was the collective conversion. So they had the idea that uh, many sections of the Spanish population was being, has been perverted by foreign ideologies, socialism, anarchism, uh, communism, republicanism, liberalism, etc., etc. So they need to uh, convert, redeem these people, and they will be able to see light and and um, became a good Spaniard. And being a good Spaniard meaning uh, being Catholic and, and following the traditional ideas of uh, of um, uh, a right wing uh, ideology. But basically, uh, to to achieve that goal, they use individual conversion because they were okay. There is one way to try to redeem the, the collective is through propaganda, through repression, etc. But they thought that that was not very effective. Or it could be effective, but the most effective way was through individual conversion. And they used different tools. Uh, for example, um, well, they use the strategy of uh, uh, the carrot and the stick. Uh, they, if if you were able to in, in prison to demonstrate that you are um, um, leaving uh, behind your uh, ideas and you are embracing the the new Catholic creed, then you will be able to get some privile- uh, privileges. Uh, also, they use, for example, families. Um, if um, so, depending on how you behave in prison, and how you behave is not only you know uh, if you are a good prisoner or not. Is if you go to the mass, if you participate in the mass, if if you go to different activities that they are implemented to try to convert you. If 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 you have this good behavior, then your family. Could be uh, could obtain some not privileges, but could obtain some food, could obtain uh, a job, etc., etc. But in contrast, if you don't follow these ideas, then your family is gonna uh, gonna have a very hard time, and that was very complicated because the vast majority of the uh, prison population in this time was uh, male and some of them, they they were the the head of the family. So without their support, without their labor support, uh, the family struggled a lot to survive in the context of a post-war, imagine. Uh, And also uh, once, for example, you go out from prison, then you have a whole system. I, I don't know if, if we talk about this in this uh, chapter or in the next one, uh, but there is a, a whole system of local authorities who we will be uh, looking at your behavior, uh, looking at what are you doing. Um, and, and that was the way... And, 
one of the main issues, for example, if you have been in prison or you have been Republican, you have a difficult. It's very difficult to. It was very difficult to get a job, uh, especially in your local community. So sometimes um, uh, people need to migrate to another different cities, uh, looking for the anonymity. Uh, to create a new life because local communities could be um, a prison as well. Yeah, you definitely develop this in, in both this ninth chapter on the conversion and in the 10th chapter, uh, as you just said, the, the 10th chapter is the final chapter in this part two, the world of repression inside local communities. And I was surprised to this a little bit. I mean, in, in the one hand, not. It's clearly an authoritarian, oppressive system. But even people who had converted, who had sort of done everything they were supposed to in prison, who and, and, their, and their imprisoners believe in their conversion, even then there continues to be an isolation, surveillance, and distrust uh, after, after the release. So could you tell us a little bit why that is? Why, why, are the, why is this prisoner status so difficult to shake off? Well, yeah. Basically, they didn't trust even those that um, really, really convert because there were people, of course, there were people uh, that were playing the game and they were trying to survive. And uh, there was uh, everyday resistance in the, in the same in the, in the sense of uh, Jamie Scott. So they were just saying what they were expected to say just to survive. But there were people that actually changed their minds and, and, and they... Uh, left all their political ideas and became uh, Catholics, etc. But even those um, had the problem that actually the authorities didn't trust them. Um, and the interesting thing in this case is uh, from the national system, uh, prison system, they, when they were released, finally, they ended up under the web of the local authorities because the Franco dictatorship gave um, a huge amount of powers to local authorities uh, for surveillance uh, and, and to keep on track uh, not only the people who were released from prison, but also their families. So, and that was necessary for... Almost everything, everything you need in your ordinary life, uh, getting a job, uh, get coupons for food, uh, even for your, if you want to drive. Uh, we found, for example, um, many complaints of uh, uh, former prisoners who were asking uh, for um, uh, for a, um, just a, a drive uh, license, uh, but the local authorities. Uh, didn't get them because they were uh, ex-Republicans, former Republicans, and they didn't trust them. So they they had in this, as I said before, in the, in the local communities, surviving, even though you have changed and you have done all that the authorities and the state has asked you to do in order to become a good Spaniard, even though there was always um, a scarf. There was always a blame on you because you have a saddle. You were one of those who put uh, Spain in the hands of the of the communists. So we don't trust you. And this saddle was under you the rest of your life. The only way you can uh, survive this, basically, uh, or the people try to survive this situation was me writing 
they uh, that and and that happened in the 1950s and the 1960s at the same time that the the, the econ- economic system in spain changed there were new policies so uh, it was the first period of industrialization etc so these two processes like a, a political process and an economic process merge all together people trying to escape from these claustrophobic uh, local communities going into a, a, a anonymous cities and and also the, the, the problem of uh, the changes in the um, economic system. So going to big cities like Madrid, Barcelona, Valencia, Bilbao, Sevilla, uh, etc., or going abroad uh, in, in Europe, in Latin America, in the US, etc., was the way that many people try to survive this uh, claustrophobic uh, situation. Your conclusion obviously restates and summarizes a lot of these points, but I think through a very great analysis of fear, and it brings us back to that tension between improvisation and emotion, and then also clear central planning. But I'll leave the conclusion uh, to readers. We don't want to give away the whole book, right? (laughs) Um, So before we go, I'd I'd love to hear from you about what you've been working on since this book and what you're working on now. Well, I've been working in different uh, topics in the last years. Um, I focus, for example, on drugs and the Spanish Civil War. Uh, and I published a book, uh, it was called Paraísos en el Infierno, Drogas y Grafibre Española. Um, the book will be published in, in English um, at the end of this year. Uh, it, will, it will be called Paradise in Hell, Alcohol and Drugs in the Spanish Civil War. Um, in this book, I've, I've been trying to address the role of alcohol, uh, tobacco, cocaine, morphine, um, marijuana, and amphetamines in the Spanish Civil War in different ways, uh, uh, looking at the ordinary experiences of soldiers, uh, how they were used um, in different uh, political discourse, for example, to, to, to target the enemy, but also in terms of uh, masculinities, uh, well, in different ways. So that has been one of the topics I've been working. Um, last year, I edited a book about subjectivity and historiography uh, related to the Spanish Civil War. So basically, I, I've been working with uh, 20 Spanish historians, and I ask them to reflect on um, the, the, the memories that they have about the Spanish Civil War or, or they, they have inherited from their families and how this, in one way or another, can be affected his way they are working about the Spanish Civil War, uh, the, uh, the topic they, they choose, their approaches, uh, etc. So um, that has been published in, in, in Spanish. Maybe it's going to be published in, in French, uh, but still I, I am uh, discussing this. Um, and now... 
I am working, well, I have different projects. Uh, um, I am working with a cartoonist and probably we will do something about the Spanish Civil War um, with the, this cartoonist, but I don't want to talk. Uh, we are in the first stage, but um, I think that could be a, a very nice book. And also uh, in terms of uh, monography, uh, I am right now working in a cultural history of the international brigades in Spain, uh, because basically the main uh, books has been published on international brigades are more like um, with a political approach uh, in terms of ideology, mobilization, etc. But I would like to do something with um, a cultural uh, approach, uh, thinking about you know the shock that is being uh, a foreign soldier. Uh, fighting in another country where you don't know the language, you don't know the culture, you don't know, you, you actually hate the food, etc., uh, <laughs> etc. Et et so I am working on this. I have published a, a couple of free articles in English about this in terms of, for example, languages, languages and international soldiers in Spain and in the French resistance. But um, uh, yeah, my idea is maybe in a couple of years, publish a, a monography on international brigades. Well, I can already think of a few colleagues I'm going to recommend Paradises and Hell to. Oh, so, thank you. <laughs> well, thank you so much for sharing your great work with us today and your time on the podcast. Thank you very much for your invitation and it has been a pleasure being with you.